We are a furniture company creating one of the most beautiful furniture on the globe. But beyond that, we also take care about the environment, about the space, because we strongly believe that space and the environment have an impact on how you behave. Welcome to another episode of our Partners in Time podcast. Um, I'm really, really excited today to be joined by Heiko Stahl from Vitra, live in the studio here today. Heiko is the managing director of Vitra in Switzerland and Austria. And of course, Vitra, to most people, doesn't need a lot of introduction. It's one of the most iconic names in the space of uh, design, interior design, furniture design, such classics as the Eames chair or the Pantone chair at home at Vitra. And Vitra is really um, quite unique. I have many links to Vitra from my past, not only studying interior design and often specifying your furniture, but of course, I used to live for a year close to your campus in Weil am Rhein, beautiful town on the Swiss-German border close to Basel. And that's where Vitra uh, is not only at home, but has a beautiful um, campus of some of the most iconic and well-known names in architecture who've contributed buildings to almost like an architecture collection campus, if I can call it that. So Heiko, very uh, welcome to our podcast. Great to have you. How are you today? I'm very well. Thanks. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me. Um, First of all, uh, great pleasure being here. Despite the Monday morning crisis and getting up early, everything is is perfectly well. Nine o'clock podcast. Yeah, huh? nine o'clock challenge. Nine o'clock <laughs> podcast, but I was traveling around two and a half hours to be here right in time. So that was a big one for me that morning. But yeah. happy to be here, full of energy. So excited what we're going to yeah. talk about. So before we uh, dive into all things design and Vita, first things first, let's do our uh, typical wrist check. What are you wearing today? Thank God the right one. Yes, absolutely. Um, the big pilot, uh, Top Gun Mojave Desert. Uh, wow. For me, one of the most beautiful watches. Um, since I have that one, never wear another watch, to be very honest. Uh, we are strongly connected, clue to my wrist. Uh, I'm very proud having that one, to be very honest. Uh, the, you know, there is a litmus test for that. I mean, true watch lovers, I mean, you should have a big pilot-shaped tan mark. On your arm. <laughs> That's the, the only proof that you're actually glued to your, to your watch. I will show it later. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> How did you get that one then? You must have connections. <laughs> well, I know some people at IWC, thank God. No, 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 no. Of course, everybody gets the same premium treatment here at IWC. And so. that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Absolutely. I met some people who are wearing that one, so it's very yeah. equal. Uh, there we are. So, you know, for our listeners who may not be so familiar with Vitra, give us a little intro. Who's Vitra and what should we know about? What does it stand for? A little bit of a history tour. What is what is Vitra? It's, it would be so easy to talk about that one in one sentence, but it's not. Um, so Vitra, it's a company which have a cultural mission and the commercial mission, which is very important to understand. Uh, we are running our own museum because it's so important to show the society what we are doing and what was happening in the past, because we can can learn a lot from the past, but also look into the future. In the other hand, we have a furniture, uh, we are a furniture company creating one of the most beautiful um, furniture on the globe, I strongly believe. But beyond that, we also take care about the environment, about the space, because we strongly believe that space and the environment have an impact on how you behave. So this is our core mission because then we have an impact on the on the corporate culture of a company and this is what we're going to change or help to transform for companies at home as well as um, on, on the office sector. 
And beside that, Wheat was just a family-owned business in the third generation, um, very strong driven by family, which is always a good sign for us because the family still strongly believes in what we are doing. And this is quite amazing these days to see that uh, family is really standing behind that one and pushing us to the limits. Absolutely. And what's the sort of ratio between sort of design classics you're producing and new designs that are in your collection? How, how is that weighted in your business? I can't give you any percentages, but it, with a design classic, us, yeah. <laughs> well, as said, uh, Swiss family-owned business, we never talk about numbers, but it's, it's pretty, not pretty easy, but it's easy to, to explain. The classics are limited because they are there. You, you can't create a new classic with the Eames, with the Beauvais or with the Panton because they are not there anymore. We might find some new designs out of the archive or whatever, but that's very limited. But what we are doing with the new products, we always ask the designer, what would Charles and Ray say? So we always have that kind of question first, what would they do? Because they really shaped us where we are. They really put some thoughts in our brain where we are. Mm -hmm. And this is so important uh, to have that in mind. Whatever comes new, it has to be relevant. It's just not another product in a new color, in something whatever, it needs to be relevant. And that's the reason why we are there and why we are really focused on that kind of development of new products. It's not an easy one for us. We really take care and go very deep. Yes. And of course you have a, we sort of as companies have quite similar missions when it comes to that, because we are in the business of timelessness, right? We are in the business of timeless designs. We are not fashion companies, you or us. And you always have this balancing act to navigate where on the one hand, you're preserving a legacy, uh, which yep. is lo longer than the season, longer than the moment, longer than your commercial quarter, as it were. But at the same time, you have to keep innovating and reinventing and adding new things. So how do you decide? I mean, obviously, we are both in a business where we'd like to create a future classic every Monday morning at nine yep. o'clock, but we have to settle for a podcast. So it's a good start. <laughs> but, um, you know, how, how do you... When you're looking at new products and potential new products, how do you navigate that to know that you are trying to do something which will be remembered and a, and a classic for generations to come? But at the same time, I mean, trends are also a reality of your business that we can't fully ignore. How, how do you approach this? It's quite conscious mix what we are doing, talking to the designers, talking about their ideas, talking what they are having in mind. But also on the other hand, looking what is going on the market, what are the, the mega trends, what is happening on the more meta level on the society, what are the changes, what is happening to us, how can we react to that one, what kind of product is needed, what kind of shape in the environment is needed. So as I said before, it's not just a single way and saying, yeah, we need a new chair. We need to understand why do we need a new chair? What is the duty of that chair? What is the ergonomic of the chair? Is there a need on the market? And how will market react to that one? What might be the right designer to approach that one? And also very important, the sustainability approach of that one. What are the new materials? What kind of materials can we integrate into that one? So by always doing that, it might take longer than if you just, as a fashion company, bring out a new product every season or even faster or even more. For us, it's more like a long time thing. It's, it's we want to create products for, for generations at the best thought. And, but you can't do that every Monday morning at nine o'clock. And not only because of we have to record a podcast, mm. but it's so many things you need to integrate on that one. And at the end, you also need a little bit of luck. Oh, yeah. Um, I think as Eames 
developed and designed the lounge chair they never had in mind. Maybe they had a MyDegrade, a classic, but you don't have a guarantee if you design a product that it becomes a classic. Not at all. So um, that's always a mix about these different kind of, of things happening on the market, what we believe in, what kind of material, and what is, uh, yeah, what do we think will stay longer than just for two or three? But I think you also have that dimension that your products go beyond a customer need. So you can't always just market research somebody needing a chair that's comfortable because they're X amount weight and X height. I mean, people buy your products out of you know pure desirability as well. Can you give us a little bit of an insight there? I mean, how much of the market is sort of the need-based market of I need a nice chair? And how much do you have in chair collectors who don't need chairs at all and have them somewhere in storage or I, I don't know does that exist or do people buy chairs because they need somewhere to sit on well they even they need to sit on somewhere but they also have if we created a limited edition like what we had done last week of course it was a pure collector's product we created the limited edition of the eames chair uh, with a steinberg drawing on that one just 500 pieces globally and that's that's really just just for the collectors mm. and and yes, we don't go out in the market and look what what does the market need. But from a sales perspective, it would be the easiest from. Mm. From the brand perspective, it would be the worst one. So you always need to find the combination on that one. You need to estimate, you need to think ahead what might happening in the market. And for us, for me, always, for us and for me, the best example was always the citizen office approach when we did the exhibition in 1993. 30 years ago, we talked the first time about an open space office about the employers being like mature citizens who can decide where they want to work, what they're going to do day by day. Nobody was asking for that one, but we strongly believed in that kind of new idea of how people work, how people collaborate and to decide themselves where they want to work. And that 30 years old, meanwhile, the whole world is talking about that. One. Yeah. And this is the thing. It's always that mix between market and what our researchers are seeing, mm. and then bring something on the market. Yeah. And always, also very important, also look back in the past because we can, we can learn a lot from the past. That doesn't mean let's do it like we have done it before, but we can learn a lot what happens yeah. there. It's really interesting. Um, I was going to talk to you about that anyway, because obviously the, the reality of, of the workplace is, is continuously evolving. But when I think back, it is actually really true that like the really... Um, fundamental creative developments in you know workplace happened 30 years or more ago where especially i think scandinavian companies started to experiment with making the office attractive in different settings creating the den kind you know different social settings and this was i mean done even all the way back to i think uh, frank lloyd wright you know you had mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. proactive um office architectural concepts that go beyond the traditional open plan box or the, beyond the uh, traditional uh, sort of cubicles that, that we used to see in the workplace a lot. And then you had uh, the next wave, which was all of the Googles of this world who did these kind of creative, almost borderline, funny, entertaining offices. And it's all about table football and slides and beanbags and, and the like. And then I feel there was a time when I didn't hear too much on that front. And then obviously COVID struck and home office. And now we're at that moment where we're saying, how do we get people back into work? How can we make the office environment more interesting, more entertaining, more engaging? How do you observe that the market at the moment and what is happening there? But and, and also, haven't the concepts all been done like 30 years ago? <laughs> Who knows? Um, we observe the market and the companies we are talking to with a, with a huge kind of un, unsecurity. They have really 
a lot of questions how to deal with that one. If you have a rate of people coming to the office with 25%, there is no need to have a, an office. There's no need to bring people to the office to work on an Excel sheet or on a PowerPoint presentation. But what we started in 1993 with a collaborative approach of the office, making the work visible, making sure that the you exchange, making sure that the people start talking to each other, that collaborative way is in our eyes that future of the office, but that started already 20 years ago. But not a lot of companies were brave enough to do this mm. because they they thought about they lost control about their employees. They lost control about their worker because they have no, in their eyes, no control about and see what they are doing. But by that change now with COVID coming and people sitting in the home office, you need to start, give the employees something that they come back to the office. And that's an exchange. That's a collaborative way. That's a forcing serendipity that you find something. Um, I believe that the innovation goes down at the moment because people don't run into each other. They don't see each other. Mm. Um, so we need to create spaces where this happens, where people see each other, run into each other. And you need to give your employees a purpose to come to work. And we are working very closely with the human needs. There were 77 human needs. Um, we have worked together with the psychologists on that case. And guess what? Work is not a human need. But to create something together, to do something together, to achieve something together, that's a human need. So I'm not saying everybody needs to be five days a week in the office, but you need to create spaces, occasions, rituals, where people come to the office and exchange and start sharing their thoughts, sharing their ideas. Mm -hmm. And it also has a lot to do with the psychology of safety of the employee. If you're just by yourself, if you're in that uncertain world, and the company seems also to be uncertain because the office is empty, you need that security as a human being. So you need to give them spaces where they collaborate, exchange, and work together. And this, for us, it's always also the visibility of the culture and the identity of the company. Culture is purely behavior of the employees. So space has an impact on this behavior, and space has, with that, an impact on the corporate culture. For us, that's so important. And yes, you're right, Franklin Wright, the race in Wisconsin building in 1937, that was that kind of huge open space office. Yeah. But with a different approach, the balcony around was for the managers <laughs> to look down and see what they yeah. are doing. And then probably 6,000 typewriters, yes. which would have been noisy. Yeah, very noisy, and the managers are controlling that one. I think that's a shift. It's mm. about trust. It's about managers being more a coach, more a human person to talk to each other and find not a dashboard guy who only looks for KPIs. Mm. Don't misunderstand me. KPIs are important for each company, but you need to be human as a leader in my eyes, and you need to be collaborative and get the people together. Mm. No, I think you, I mean, you obviously touched on a, on a huge topic there, which is really about, I think, two things. It's, it's how identity is being expressed through space, because there's a discussion we have a lot. I mean, when we started um, creating workspaces here at IWC, my approach was always at the time to try and create a balance between something that is kind of design studio and something that's quite domestic, residential in its feel, um, with ultimately taking people away from the very sort of mechanical sort of office mm -hmm. factory environment, but to give an environment that had, has cues of a residential setting, which I hope makes people a bit more relaxed and then trying to play a little bit on this sort of art studio space to, you know, in, in my way, foster this collaboration a little bit of saying people are actually coming together and being a social space mm -hmm. rather than being an isolation space. Um, but then often when we speak to, 
different people who plan offices, etc. I sometimes find it quite a, if it's a random collection of furniture and furniture ideas and furniture products, then of course you're missing the other bit, which is how do you express the corporate identity? Well, that's a bit of a enough word, but it is really the the workplace identity, the company identity of who you are, which also needs to be expressed in the spaces to differentiate what a health insurance office is versus a car company office versus a watch office. So how, when you approach this, where do you see um, the balance there between on the one hand, making sure that the environment you're creating is actually helping people to do what they hopefully do best in this space. But at the same time, you want personality, mm -hmm. which then is sort of the slide in the beanbag or the US mailbox and fake grass. I don't know. Yeah. How, how do you do that? It's first, in the ideal situation, we have with our consulting team, we talk to the client first and see where do you see yourself and where do you see yourself in the future mm -hmm. with associative pictures. So it's not about this is us now and there's we want to be with a clear kind of statement. No, it's about changing from a hamburger into a, a Michelin star or into a cheeseburger, maybe, <laughs> I don't know. Changing from a, from a single boat into a huge boat where all the people sitting together. So to understand what is your culture now and where you want to change the culture. But the identity of the company is one thing. The workflow need also work in that company. It doesn't make sense only to create a nice office, put some football things into that one or table tennis or the, the the Swiss cable car like Google has done it. If this is the culture of Google, that's fine. But this is not the IWC culture mm -hmm. and this is not the Mercedes culture or whatever. But we need to find out what is your culture, what is your identity and make that visible in the office without losing the workflow type. Because if it looks great, but the workflow doesn't work, that that's not the right thing. So for us, if we talk about consulting, if we talk about interior design, is always that mix between it and a quite nice balance to have that one. And that's always very important. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot here too much, but do you have a concrete example of how one of your changed spaces has changed behavior of people in that space? For, for us, ourselves, we, we can always talk about what we are changing with our clients, but we need to try it ourselves first. So we changed during COVID our whole uh, product development department. We called it before COVID the black box. Nobody was allowed to go in there. The engineers and the designers were in there and were in their own bubble. Mm. And one of a sudden we realized there should be an exchange. Uh, would helpful, not one of a sudden, but it was like it was like that. So we changed the whole setup in our product development department and created a club office out of that one. So the first part, 300 square meters, it's purely collaboration, exchange, and an open door. So we make sure that our partners, our dealers, architects, interior designer, our sales force can come together with the engineers, with the developers there, with the product marketing team, and start exchanging. And this had a huge impact on how they behave and how we develop products meanwhile. And to see that one, that space really can help you by doing that, it's an amazing part to see. On the other hand, I need to talk about on-running. Um, if you see the 17-floor building, what they created with, with stairs going from the top floor to the down floor to make sure that people run into each other, talk to each other, and exchange ideas, it's also for me one of the best examples how people behave, how people work together, how open, transparent, and visible a workforce can work together. Mm. Yeah, so one of the things that always strikes me when we visit different spaces and companies and offices, I think one of the 
surefire proof points that a space is not working is if the management of such spaces need to put up a lot of signs everywhere. This is always, you know, I, I'm, I have a thing about signs, and especially these, you know, don't punch our receptionists in the face, please. Those kind of signs, <laughs> anti-violence, and please don't you know, throw your rubbish in the corner here. That, that for me is always like a clear indicator. If it needs explaining and if you need to remind people how to behave in the space and what you expect from them, clearly you've got the wrong space. And the classic example for me was always Geneva Airport um, for many years, had a completely counterintuitive security concept where you basically picked up a tray half a mile before you got to the scanner and you were then supposed to push this tray forward on a conveyor belt yourself all the way through the queue and then entered into the scanner. And of course, nobody understood this. Yeah. You know, and for years, they had a combination of signs everywhere, videos everywhere explaining this, and then the security guys shouting at people to move their tray forward until they realized one day that what they had to do is change their system to have a similar flow of trays like all other airports in the world. And guess what? It worked. Since then, no more signs, no more shouting. Yeah. It's altogether a better environment. So sometimes it really is as simple as that. It is. And space can can help you. If you create the space the right way, people walk in intuitive and see where is what and how to deal with something. Mm. And this is what we always try to achieve. Mm. It, it needs to be easy to understand what's going on inside the space. If it's complicated, you don't do it and you feel somehow lost. Yeah. And if you need signage, where, what to do, my big mistake. <laughs> it's nothing to do with culture. You're going to help me out here as well, because um, let's talk about trends for a minute. Because, you know, from there was a very strong period in the early 2000s when you know, there was retail design and office design, you had minimalism everywhere. And then you had this combination of sort of high-end materials and design classics. I'm sure that's where the Eames chair did extremely well. Then I felt there was a period where I couldn't really put my finger on what the actual current interior design trend is. That may be just me, but I couldn't really see strongly what is coming through. And now we have a trend. Problem is, I don't know what it's called. Mm. So, I mean, this whole sort of pastely colors, you know, vintage inspired furniture, this Aesop, I, would, I always yeah. call it the Aesop shop kind of. What is this style called? Do you know? Um, I guess not Aesop style. It's <laughs> <laughs> the only word I know for it. <laughs> But it's it's a distinctive trend. It, it's something we're seeing now. It's even I saw the other day, even on our Teams meeting now, there's backgrounds which are clearly uh, these kind of environments, and yeah. and it's a different flavor when it comes to furniture design as well. It's quite eclectic. It's quite sort of seventies. It's very roundy, archy design everywhere. So when you see something like this emerging, what does a company like Vitra do? How do you how do you deal with that? It's it's quite interesting for us because we have such a huge collection of fabric of different kind of. Um, surface and everything. We usually can work with even with a classic product on a certain way and what's going on trend wise. And maybe that's a trend and not to have that sleek kind of everything is clean, sharp look anymore. It's more like you said, it's more like that human touch into that one. Yeah. More like that little bit more color. More organic. I more guess. organic shape. Also the biophilic approach in architecture helps a lot to bring the nature into that one to take more care of that one. It's not about having a clear, easy looking floor, white and black, that's it. Even if white and black might be nice. And if it's your culture, it's also fine to have it. But it's getting more, yeah, organic forms. It's the biophilic approach which's going on and a very, very huge trend. It's using used furniture. Yeah. So it's not about producing everything, single item you need new. You need to find it somewhere on the second market. You need to find ways 
how to deal with that one. It's a sustainability approach, but also humans realize it's important to be like that. But nevertheless, I think, you know, I fully agree with you that as a company, especially, it's it's more about expressing beyond trend, the individuality and the identity of the company. But there are areas, I mean, trends do affect hospitality design, bar and cafe design, for sure. We've seen years and years of, of everything being decked out in restoration hardware, the retro warehouse factory style, and you had these kind of white metro tiles, and then you had a sort of vintage reclaimed wood meeting, you know, sort of old steel uh, fittings. And then all of a sudden, everything's changing to organic, let's call it Aesop style for a minute. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it must put... I mean, it's good for you as a business in a sense, but it also must put owners of these spaces into a difficult spot because one of these major trends change from one day to another, your craft beer pub cannot look retro industrial anymore. Mm. I mean, you, you will have to change, mm. right? And that, that must have an effect on, on you know, what you sell more of and what you sell less of. It's so different to see if we talk about home and offices mm. and if you create these space and if you talk about a pub. I yep. mean, we want to create spaces, furniture and things which last for 15, 20, 25 years, products which you hand over to the next generation. I think if you are having a pub or a restaurant, you unfortunately need to go with a trend because if not, you lose yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, let's talk a little bit about how we met. Of course, you, you gave us great, great support with our engineer campaign, with our sort of retro-futuristic uh, launch, harking back to the design classics of the 1970s uh, in the engineer run-up. And um, we did the um, pre-Watchers and Wonders uh, press event at the Science Museum in London. Tell us a little bit about how the collaboration came about and, and what we did in the run-up to Watchers and Wonders this year. Nobody believed that story, but it happened on a Sunday, on a Saturday morning, 8.30. I received a message via LinkedIn from Ricardo, oh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. of the partnerships. <laughs> and I was like, what is this guy from IWC wants from me? So I responded quickly. We start exchanging and we had our first call on Tuesday. Hmm. And Ricardo said, look, you need to sign an NDA first before I talk about uh, what, we, what we plan. And I said, okay, happy. And then you came up with all this idea about watches and wonder, pre-watches and wonder, with an engineer launch, with that kind of, yeah, design iconic timepiece mm. from Cheryl Genda, which is an amazing piece. And you relaunched that one this year. And I was very excited that Ricardo thought about us being part of that one. And after two or three minutes, we thought, look, we have so much in, in, in similarity that we need to work together. And for me, it was right at the beginning and no, a no brainer to say, yeah, let's work together. Of course, there are always like, like some, some hurdles in between. Everybody has this kind of Don Quixote feeling sometimes and, and having the windmills in between, but we came over that one. Mm -hmm. So as a team, I believe we work great together. Also with my team, um, in place, did a little bit the design, make sure that all the delivery work, made sure that we have the right, lead time, made sure that we had the right products there. And the outcome was for me really exciting to see pre-watches and wonder our pieces and the perfect match mm. with the engineer. And then at, at watches and wonder in Geneva, I was, I think I was speechless to see it. Um, how kind of normal the two brands work together. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I think the, Set up in the Science Museum just blew me away. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. You know, the, the way that both sort of our grid texture and that very puristic space, I mean, it worked so well because you had a technical space up on top floor of the Science Museum, you had a great view over the London skyline. And then you created these islands of design objects, Vita furniture, you know, some semi-private spaces, some interview spaces, and the whole thing just looked 
organically perfect. Yeah. You know, it just fell into place. And then at Watches and Wonders as well, what was really my my experience that I you know, spoke to you about at the time is typically all of these events are put up for a day or for a week, right? So mm -hmm. you are in a very temporary space, and often because of that, you have rental furniture of you know sort of basic quality, I would call it. And to me, it was striking how even in that ephemeral temporary space, having a high quality furniture that you piece of furniture that you touch and that you sit on and that you, that you feel, how it transforms your perception of a temporary space because all of the touch surfaces all of a sudden are long lasting, super high quality and of high design quality. And all of a sudden you feel like you're at home. You don't feel anymore like you're in Palexpo exhibition space you know, on temporary carpet in a temporary yeah, construction, right? Yeah, yeah. So these elements that you touch and just, you know, combining the very temporary with the very long lasting just completely changes your perception of the space. And that's, I thought, was so striking this year about that, how you did that, Adagio. I have, I had the exactly the same impression. I mean, th this is what I meant before. Um, furniture can support the behavior on the space. And I think that's what we realized at Watches and Warn because everybody felt comfortable. Everybody had that sense of quality. It was nothing kind of temporary. It was nothing, nothing at Watches and Warn shabby, but that was a clear statement about quality because all the furniture are used again. Yes. So it was not rented. It was not just for that one event for that week. We put them in London, the same furniture we put them into Geneva yes. and we reusing and now in the boutique in Copenhagen and elsewhere, yeah, which yeah. is so good to see. You and know, this uh, is, this is always our approach by doing that. But, but I've realized it. It was my first time in watches and wonder first time in Geneva. And I love watches, um, as, as you know, and I walked in there and I had the great opportunity. I thought to see all the other stands, but I was like for six hours only on the IWC stand and I left again because I oh, felt coffee is just better. <laughs> yeah. It, it was the coffee, it was the talks, it was the idea of quality. It was that kind of feeling we created together. You don't want to go. You just felt I belong to that space. Yeah. And that was quite impressive. And the other thing that happened in the meantime is, of course, we had uh, one of those beautiful Mercedes-Benz C111s on our booth. And now Gordon has actually relaunched a, a vision of yeah. the C111. Yeah. I haven't seen the car. Right. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> Only had eyes for the furniture. I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I see. There's the car guys coming through. Let's spend uh, two more minutes um, uh, talking a little about the, yourself and your own background and how you got into Vitra. You know, what, what, what's, how, what is your journey to, to end up where you are today? Oh, my journey, I, I, was, I was growing up in a little farm somewhere in Germany, Baden-Württemberg, uh, a village with 1,500 people. And nobody was talking about watches there. Nobody was talking about furniture there. And at the age of 16, I decided I need to leave school. Uh, it's not my way. Um, they can't taught me anything anymore. My son is going through that right now. Oh, <laughs> tough one. <laughs> but it might be worse thinking about it mm. or not. It's up to you. But uh, I decided to go. It was a nightmare for my parents. And I started that apprenticeship in, in Germany. You can do the three-year apprenticeship yeah. and, a, and an office dealership. And I was so so pissed, to be very honest, to work on the office furniture side because I thought it was so boring. And that was all in 1986. So mm. you know how old I am. Mm. Um, did the military service, came back, and I said, look, that can't be everything. And then I decided, let's study economics. Mm. Um, did the tough way in the evening on, on, on Saturday school oh. at the university in Freiburg. Finished it, met my wife in between, and uh, some have a wife in, in the background or in the foreground. It's always important uh, for people like me, at least. 
And then I was in that industry, um, in the office furniture and furniture industry, home furniture industry. Like in 2011, I received a call from a headhunter. Um, there might be a position free at Vitra in Frankfurt, becoming the sales director for that region. Mm. And I said, look, I have a history at Vitra. Um, in 1993, they don't want to have me. And in 2002, I never signed the contract they sent me. So there might be a kind of thing going on. But at the end, it was 1-1. We it was signed the destiny. contract. Yeah, it's your destiny. Right signed, contract, right time, and it, you signed. A right contract, right time, and the decision was made in 15 minutes. So we met at the 20th of December, we signed it, and everything was clear. And two and a half years later, they asked me, um, you want to become um, managing director of Switzerland? And I said, look, I'm German. Um, and they said, well, you're German, but you can handle that one. So, And I said, okay, let's move to Switzerland. And since 2014... I moved to Switzerland, um, took over Switzerland, then Austria afterwards, and the international key account management team as well. So having the headquarter responsibility for international key account and the market responsibility for Austria and Switzerland. And I never want to go back. Um, feel so comfortable. It's an amazing place to live. It's an amazing place to work with uh, the best team in the world, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, amazing. And of course, I have to um, end on our cheesy time question. It's got to be done every single time. But when you think back to your path, your life, your career, and there's one moment where you wished you could freeze time forever, where would it take you back to? That's a tough one. Um, there were some occasions, I believe, and that sounds very romantic. Very it's a family show, by the way. A, huh? <laughs> yeah, no, it's, no, no, it, it is. But I, I really believe that moment I realized that that colleague of mine is the right person I want to spend the rest of my life with. Mm. That was just an impressive moment. And you can't recall that moment anymore because it was just there. Yeah. But to have that feeling once more, that would be impressive to be very <laughs> honest. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much, Heiko, for spending time with us, for speaking about all things furniture design, timelessness, and so on. So thank you very much for being part of this. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. It was great pleasure. My pleasure as well. Thank you so much. And ladies and gentlemen, that was it for another episode. Uh, do check out our podcast everywhere where you get your podcasts from Spotify to Apple and so on. Looking forward to speak to you again soon in another episode of Partners in Time. Thanks a lot. Bye for now. 